Love that one line, I'll be your vessel, the world to see your life in me. That's really at the, uh, at the heart of this series, Earthen Glory, because Paul's epistle to the Christians, to the church at Ephesus, and in that vicinity, the other cities such as Colossae, there were a number of cities in the Lycus Valley. But that's really at the heart of the gospel, that God's glory is evident, visible in us uh, as we sang, I will be your vessel, the world to see your life in me. And uh, this morning, we're going to be again in Ephesians chapter 6, starting back in chapter 5, Paul adopted a very conventional form of presentation. It was the common denominator of life throughout the Roman Empire, and that's the family. Uh, it's termed the household code, the household code. It's easier to say in German than it is in English for me, but... Um, the Hausstaffel, that's household code. But um, with that in mind, Paul addresses the elements of the household. And he began with wives and husbands, children and parents, and now he turns to slaves and masters, which is foreign to us because slavery in the first century was not like the kind of slavery that uh, we've heard about colonial slavery. It wasn't like that. It was just as heinous, but it wasn't based in any way on race. Um, and I've talked a lot about the difference between slaves and masters. There's a very important distinction here in Ephesians, which I just want to bring slightly to your attention, because in using this expression, Paul is... Uh, as it were, addressing the whole world in these two categories, these two halves of a whole, and that is slaves and free. Slaves and free. And he does that here in chapter 6 as we get down uh, to the end of verse 8. Well, we could, we could cause or call this theme this morning worker service, and uh, with that in mind, I wanted to tell you just a little bit about my work history. I started working when I was a sophomore in high school. And I know some of you could one-up me very easily. And I know my father-in-law, he worked from an even younger age every, every morning milking the cows. So I know there are people in this room that have worked very, very hard. Um, but when I was about 20 years of age, one of my jobs was at Peterson's Plumbing and Air Conditioning. Peterson's Plumbing and Air Conditioning. I met Dick Peterson after I devoted my life to Christ 
I was about 19 at the time. I started, I finally found my way to church. Uh, first, I tried to go it alone. And I wanted to work with kids because I thought maybe I could be useful there. Just a little bit older, I worked with high school students. And on Sunday mornings, I was paired with a man named Dick Peterson. I'm guessing he was um, in his 40s. And after some time, he offered me a short-term job over the summer, just a couple of weeks doing dirty work uh, around the shop. And because I was a hard worker, I'd been taught to work hard, uh, he asked me to stay on. And so I began working as a warehouseman and a plumber's assistant. And over me was the foreman, and his name was Harry Anderson. Harry Anderson was a wonderful foreman. He praised us when we did things well. He corrected us without shaming us or causing us to lose face when we did something wrong. And what was most interesting to me, I mean, I just picked this up. It wasn't on an agenda or anything, but I... I observed that Harry would allow us to do some of the jobs that he could have kept just for himself. For example, sometimes we were not just uh, sorting parts or cleaning off plumbers' trucks or doing inventory, but sometimes uh, we were allowed to go out onto the job with the plumbers and do work there or make runs for parts at parts shops which he could have kept all to himself. In other words, he did what he asked us to do, and he allowed us to do what which was, in some ways, um, things we could do, but really exclusive to himself. I loved working at Peterson's Plumbing because I loved Dick Peterson. He was the owner. Um, he was a good man. He had invested in me. I respected it and admired him. I also loved working there because of Harry Anderson. And then everything changed. They offered the job of foreman to me when Harry went into artificial insemination and uh, made a career of that. Jokes come to mind right now, but I'm not going to mention them. <laughs> And they offered the position to me, but I was not interested in the long term, you know, either becoming a plumber or the foreman because I was in school and training to go into ministry. And, uh, and so Dick Peterson gave the job to his son-in-law. I'm going to call his son-in-law Barry. And Barry was no Harry, not by a long shot. Uh, Barry gave all the grunt work to the rest of us, kept all the plum stuff for himself, never offered praise, never inspired, uh, never enthused, never encouraged, and it began to eat at me. And over time, it, it so irritated me it didn't alter the performance of my work. I was still 
as it were, working for Dick. But what started to seep in was even Dick's judgment. And my, my view of him was in question. And I built up resentment that made it very uncomfortable, unenjoyable to go to work. And by f- Sunday afternoon, uh, I was brooding and I, I, it was it creeping in already into Sunday and because I'd start thinking, I've got to go to work tomorrow and I don't want to go to work. You see, what's happened here is and this, I'm sure you've had a similar experience, uh, maybe on some different level, but a, a job, uh, you lose your drive, you lose any sense of mission or perspective on the job. All of a sudden, it's, it's not just the paycheck or the money. Uh, something else is, is really defeating you uh, in your work. What was kind of sad for me was I prayed, I was a young Christian, and I prayed, would Jesus deliver me, you know, be my savior, fix that guy, or fix this situation. But I didn't really see him, I mean, yeah, I knew up in my head that he was Lord, savior and Lord. But I was having a really tough time with him being my Savior and Lord on the job. I wasn't willing to let him fix me. And that really is the issue here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. I'd like to read it to you. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters. And it's interesting because the word master is the same word that is used to identify Jesus as Lord. So that's why he qualifies it earthly masters. You could say, obey your earthly lords, but then he'll switch to the Lord. But he does make that distinction. He wants them to be clear on that because he's going to emphasize how everything that happens in our world is dependent on the place of Jesus Christ as Lord in that world. So he says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. By the way, do you notice how most translations translate it servant, servants of Christ, or bond servant? Because, yeah, we, we realize that the word slave can confuse us and make us think of more recent notions of slavery. But we really need to see, Jesus talked a lot about the distinction between slaves and masters. In fact, it's, although to pin numbers down is difficult, I know studies that have been able to look at more data just on the population within a certain time frame, this period of time in Italy, 15 to 25 percent of the population was slave. That's one-sixth to one-fourth. In a sense, one in every four people in here this morning could be a slave. Not all 
who were here would be masters. But in the house stuffel or the household code, Paul, you'll notice the common denominator is the father, or excuse me, the husband, the father, and the master. And those three are usually the same person in a household, the man, because it's a patriarchal society. So all of this is dealing in a way that breaks all the rules, so to speak, with what was common and the way others would use this same kind of model to talk about conduct as a unit, a basic unit of, of life and of the Roman Empire. Um, Paul is rather subversive, and he's subversive because of Jesus. And this is the same theme that is coming out here, which I'll uh, talk about a little, just a little bit more. Um, and so he says, verse 7, rendering service with a good will to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is their master, both their master and yours, is in heaven and that there is no partiality uh, with him. Who do you serve? That's really a fundamental question. Bob Dylan asked that in a well-known, uh, well-known song. You gotta serve somebody. Everybody's serving somebody. The question is who? And that really becomes a prominent question here and Paul's emphatic answer is the Lord Jesus Christ if we call him Lord and Savior. Paul calls slaves and masters to a different mindset, a higher master, a Lord that is highest of all. And this requires a mind shift, if you will, a change of heart, or as we've uh, sometimes talked about it, a paradigm shift. I remember Stephen Covey in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People talks about a paradigm shift. In fact, he remembers an occasion when he got onto a subway in New York. It was a Sunday morning. And it was rather quiet as the train rumbled along. When it stopped and entered a man with his children. And the children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate on the subway car changed. The man sat down, Covey continues, right next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. And the children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing, and yet the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let children run wild like that and do nothing about it. Can you identify? Have you ever felt that way? Or in some similar way? Man, this just shouldn't be happening. This is such an intrusion and interruption and inconvenience. This wasn't the way I was raised. Why doesn't this parent take care of his children? 
And so he says, this man was taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to consciousness, consciousness of the situation for the very first time, and said softly, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died an hour ago. I didn't know what to think. I guess they don't know how to handle it either. And Covey says, that was a paradigm shift. He says, you can imagine what I felt at that moment. My paradigm shifted. Suddenly, I saw things differently. And because I saw things differently, I thought differently. And I felt differently. And I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with this man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife has just died? Oh, I am so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. Now that illustrates a paradigm shift. And Paul is talking about a paradigm shift. You see, Jesus is a paradigm shift. That's what faith is all about. That's why life is transformed, because the reality of Jesus becomes real to us, and he is not like this world. He is foreign to this world. And when he is influencing us and not the world, it causes a kind of mini seismic shift in the way we look at things, the way we see people. The more we grow in Christ, the deeper we appreciate his heart, his compassion, his feelings for people. The kingdom that he describes, what it looks like to follow him and be his disciple, as that increasingly becomes true of us, it causes a constant shift in the way we engage this world, the way we look at other people, and nonetheless, the way we engage our workplace and the annoying people in life, and nonetheless, the annoying people at work, whether they be boss or coworker or even subordinate. 
You may find yourself this morning in the position of, by, in principle, master and slave, as it were. But Paul has something to say to us all because Jesus is our paradigm shift. Without transfer, without quitting, without stealing, without undermining the authority of the person before us, above us, or even below us, without any of those things that sometimes are a temptation at work, we can, so to speak, enter a new phase in our work when Jesus Christ becomes the one and only one for whom we work. He becomes our master. And in Christ, no job is too small. No job is too small. Can you shift that for, for me, that slide, please? But it depends on the question, who are you going to serve? That is a question that I have to continue to face. Um, I love my work. My job is a dream job. But I'm going to level with you. It's a dream job because I choose to see it that way. And I see it that way, a way I couldn't see it on my own because of Jesus Christ. I don't see myself as passive in my job. I see my, myself as active. I can be an influence when Christ is serving through me. In other words, I replace a job or a paycheck with a mission. You can make your job a mission field. We could say that of any other topic Paul talks about because the principles that Paul is talking about here are the same. Put your eyes on Christ. Serve him. Not yourself and not somebody else. Look at what he says in verse 5. Just to give you a quickie, uh, slaves, obey Christ. Do God's will. In other words, do it God's way. From the heart, verse 6, serve the Lord wholeheartedly. It literally means from the soul, verse 7. And then in verse 9, masters, do the same for them. That is shocking. That is stunning. This is pretty subversive stuff. In fact, this is unpopular to many, especially masters and the status quo. What Paul is talking about here goes beyond the golden rule. You should write that down. This goes beyond the golden rule. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this earthen glory, earthen, it, it takes place here, not over the rainbow, not beyond our problems, but in the midst. And the glory of God is manifest in us through Jesus Christ and the operation of his Holy Spirit. It's, it, it doesn't always look glamorous, but the results are glorious.
And it goes beyond the golden rule because the golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you and to me. We use ourselves, our own self-interest, and our own promotion and primacy of place as the standard. But Paul knows that's a faulty standard. And so he says, do unto your master, do unto your slave, do unto your spouse, do unto your neighbor, do unto the driver, do unto the... Do unto them all as you would do unto Jesus Christ himself. That is the most powerful motivation known to us if we call him Lord. Paul calls himself a slave in the opening of his letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he calls himself a slave to Christ. In Philippians 2, 7, again he does. And in all of this, we are to act, whether slave or free, as if we were serving our benevolent, kind, loving, good master, Jesus Christ. Uh, Klein Snodgrass, I don't usually uh, quote something I, I read at any length, but he wrote something that I couldn't say better, and I thought it just really tells you how subversive this is. He says, slave owners may have been pleased with the service that they would get if slaves followed Paul's advice here. But in the process, those slave masters lost control for slaves now had a higher allegiance than to their owners. Slaves no longer belonged to their owners, did not really serve their owners, did not merely do their will, did not seek to please them, and were no different from them because they were serving Jesus Christ alone. The idea that in dealing with human beings, they were really dealing with Christ is reminiscent of Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And so what Paul is asking slaves and masters is what he has asked of all of us and all of his readers in this letter. In verse 10 of chapter 5, in verse 17 of chapter 5, and in verse 21, when he said, submit yourselves one to another. That is the hardest thing for us. We can't do it to each other because we get in the way of each other. You know? You would find it hard to submit to me if I had a bad attitude, or you would find it hard to be deferential or thoughtful or loving or helpful or kind. You would think I didn't deserve it. You know, if I, if I kind of had an attitude... But if you were doing it for Christ, you say, oh, I can see. Yeah, well, he's the pastor. We, do, we shouldn't have to help him. He's above all of us. He should be better than us. So therefore, but then you could look up and you could say, man, that guy needs some help. You see, in Christ, you could do that. Even if I wouldn't inspire you. I wouldn't, would I, if I was, if I was being a stinker. 
I wouldn't inspire you. I wouldn't encourage you. You wouldn't want to do something nice for me. You would probably want to find more fault with me because I'm the pastor. But you see the principle here? Is in Christ, when he's our master, it doesn't matter who's on the other end. Whether it's an earthly master or another free person or another slave, it doesn't matter where you are on the social scale, husband or wife, children, parents, crazy uncle. This is too much, isn't it? It's too much. It can only be done in Christ's power. It can only be done when we adopt his heart, you know? When we, we, we know his heart because we've experienced it when he reached out to us in compassion and grace, sweetness, kindness, when we didn't deserve it. And that reminds us, it really is the spirit and heart of Jesus that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Some dismiss it. They say, oh, it's utopic. It could only be speaking about the millennial kingdom or the kingdom come in irresistible force. But you see, when Jesus is master, this power takes over and it causes us to step out in faith and to be like Jesus. That's why up here, our mission is to be Christ-like. We fail. And Jesus gets us right back up and in the game if we'll allow him to introduce into our hearts a paradigm shift, an exchange of lords where he becomes master and inspires us in no small way to do great things that we have received from him and we can do in his strength. Even when the job isn't what we wish, even when the work isn't easy, even when the wage isn't worth it. We have lots of motivations. My first job was at Kentucky Fried Chicken. They didn't, they didn't have KFC back then. It was just Kentucky Fried Chicken. Really, it was, I think, the first year of their existence on the West Coast. And pff, the wages were horrible, but... And I, 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 I gave up... Who knows? I could have been an Olympian, but I gave up after school sports because... I wanted to be cool, and to be cool, or hip, or whatever the appropriate word is today, you had to have a car, and you can't have a car without money. And when you want money so you can have a car, so you can take girls out on dates, 
and be as accepted and approved as everybody else, you will work the cruddiest job on earth. Amazing, the motivation. And once you get the car, the job really goes in the tanker. I've worked a lot of farm labor, picking tomatoes, knocking almonds and walnuts back before they had automated shakers. We used to wear the pith helmets, you know, the whole thing. Amazing. I was a store custodian and then a bag boy. I insulated houses on the construction site and residential. And then I was a warehouseman and a plumber. And of all those jobs that at the time I just was never fully motivated, didn't see the mission because I hadn't grown in Christ. You see, I'm teaching you this morning that we have to look at life and our jobs, whether we're teachers or plumbers or whatever job it is, we have to look at it as our mission and our mission field. We're not passive. We're not there to just hope everything goes great or wait for Jesus to fix things. We're to introduce through the power of his spirit the dynamic, catalytic influence of Jesus Christ on the workplace. Doesn't mean that you have to carry your Bible necessarily in public unless they allow that sort of thing. You're not supposed to poke and annoy and irritate and make a fool of yourself but you could influence people through your counsel. You could speak about the Lord. You can have Lord alerts every day, many times a day. Lord, what would you have me do in this situation? How can I do this in your power and your strength? Because I am here at your command. And you can actually, Lord, use me, the tone of my voice, the countenance of my face, the spirit of my heart, the things that I have to say, the example I have to set. It's interesting here that when Paul talks uh, to slaves, he talks to them about integrity in verse 5, enthusiasm in verse 7, and excellence in verse 7. Sincerity of heart which means without duplicity, that's integrity. Enthusiasm. This doesn't mean just feeling it. In fact, the word that's used here is the opposite of affectionate love. Boy, wouldn't we all want to be pulled along by affectionate love. But this expression that is often translated enthusiasm really speaks of a mindset that is favoring. And this is where we become transformed, our minds are renewed through the truth of Jesus Christ in our lives. And that begins to change our perspective. It's not like, oh no, that happened. How could this happen to me? God, where are you? Why did things go wrong here? Oh, we mope around and life is so bad. How do I know? Because I've been there. I do this too. But as we grow in Christ, we start looking at difficulties and challenges differently. We realize, Lord, you may want me to move and act and have an influence here. 
We can do that with our children. We can do that with our parents. We can do it with in-laws. We can do it in the workforce, in our neighborhood, in any public space or even private space where we belong. We can have that kind of influence if we'll have that kind of mindset a favoring mindset. Eunoia is the Greek word, and it can be translated as enthusiastic or to have a favoring thought life or a favoring mindset. And we should have that in Jesus Christ, don't you think? I mean, really, if Jesus... If he's really present, and he really is, and I'm really his servant... And he is a benevolent, good, loving master. Then all we have to do is start thinking favorably because of the favorable one in us. You know what I'm trying to say? You can engage in stinking thinking. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to stink because it's putrid. It's putrid thinking. But what if we start thinking constructively and positively, not as just passive pawns waiting for God to move us against our will, but to be transformed, to go through that paradigm shift where we let the Lord in and we start thinking his thoughts after him and we start moving as he would have us move. That's really what I'm talking about. There's a, I I read this, I'm not going to, I'm going to get right to the chase on this uh, illustration that I worked out. I I fact-checked it. It's about, it was set in 1942, a U.S. sailor uh, entangled with the Japanese the, the ships are trading shells. A shell hits a ship. He's knocked overboard. He was wearing a life vest. He's a couple of days in the water. A destroyer spots him, picks him up, pulls him out of the water, dries him off. Then they come upon the ship that was shelled. The captain's trying to run it aground and spare the ship. So they put him back on that ship They hit a sandbar. He's knocked off again, spends another couple of days in the water. Finally, he's pulled up and saved from the Astoria of one of 500 that were ultimately saved. And then he was given leave time. But he uh, remembered that on that jacket, which that flak jacket, that uh, life-saving jacket, there was a a serial number, and it was a Firestone-made safety jacket. And when he went home, he remembered well that number. He asked his mom because she worked for Firestone, the same you know Firestone Firestone Tire Company. And she said, "Well, yeah, I can run that number because we all." work with a number. We put our number because the company wanted individual responsibility out of all the workers, a sense of, I did this. You know, this is my work. I'm proud of it. I've done a good job. And it turned out that that life jacket was made by his mother. Now, I just got to thinking, you know, I didn't even know if I'd use it. I thought, nobody will believe that. 
But what if the, I'll bet there are a few of you who really have difficult work situations and there's a, there's a berry in your life, like that berry that I had. But what if you saw berry as potential family? See, if you knew that your family was going to be dependent upon the, the physical product of your hands, such as a life jacket, you would put your best work into it. But when we put our work into the Lord's work and give it our best, can we who have been redeemed by that same Lord think anything other than the fact that the Lord and his mission is that the people that are our obstacles and difficulties are the very people that he wants to become our brothers and sisters in Christ? That there is nobody beyond the pale of the family of God of the life-saving, redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. And that's the life force that we bring when we give our lives to Jesus Christ and walk in faith wherever we are, whether it's in our sometimes difficult marriage or our sometimes difficult children as parents or parents as children or workplace, whether we're slave or master. In the Lord, no job is too small. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray. I want to remind you I'll be up here along with pastors and staff uh, to pray with you if God has spoken to your heart. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord? Do you know this power, this person, Jesus Christ? If you'd like to know more, Pray to receive him. Give your life to him. Who are we to say what the Lord is doing here this morning in your heart? Don't deny him. It's the first step of recognizing him as Lord and Savior. We invite you to come. Maybe God's put something on your heart for yourself or for someone else. If so, we invite you to come. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes it all real when we allow him to be Lord in our lives. And there are so many beautiful things that begin to emerge as we walk in faith with him and know the power of your spirit in our lives. We praise you for this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, God bless you.